Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, home shoppers. If you're looking for some Red Spot specials, it's your lucky day. You've landed on the right spot. Congratulations on joining us, where the price is always right, here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here, with his straw boater, his satin waistcoat, and his spruker's mic in hand, it's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? And no red spot specials on me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Full price you're going to pay. Full, Full price. price. Now, do you think red spot specials is universal? Do you think that's across the world? Do you I, think... I think it is. Have I just advertised for a particular company? No, no. I think there's some in Australia, but I do get the feeling that it is something that you see a red spot on something, you know Ooh. there's a deal going on yes. here. However. So, of all the universal things, green on traffic lights seems to be pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Red on a device, on a product, on something yeah, seems to be... Something to attract the eye. Pretty universal. You need to buy that thing. That's right. Even if it's not on special, it <laughs> looks like it's on special. It, even if you weren't even in the market for it. Just even better. Buy even it. better. So now this week I had an interesting experience, and it's not brand new technology, but I still like the usage of it. There's a conference I've gone to for many years. I think the first time I went to this particular conference was about 2006. So I've been going for a while, and one of the parts of this conference is quite interesting, where they like to get specific information about certain areas and they like to get a vote from all the delegates at the conference. So you typically get about 800, probably, actually probably more than probably a thousand at the conference, but certain people are voting delegates at the conference. So there's Mm. probably about 800 voting delegates. And I remember in the early days, there'd be various things that would come up that were discussed and then they'd ask for a vote from all the voting delegates and you'd have your little piece of cardboard in your hand that was a certain colour, probably not that hard to replicate, not high security (laughs) here, and you'd hold the card up in the air to vote, and most of the votes were pretty obvious one way or the other, so the the chairperson would say, yes, we're going that way, that's carried or that's been lost, but every now and again, you'd have a tight vote. So then they'd say, we better just do a count. So you can imagine, 800 in the room, uh, everyone that's in favour of this, hold your uh, piece of cardboard up in the hand, they'd have a couple of sections of the audience, they'd break it up and they'd go and count that part and someone else would be counting this part and then they'd have the vote there, People's yes. arms would be cramping up. <laughs> that's right. They yeah. thought they were on Survivor or something. How much longer do I have to hold my arm? Am I going to be the last one here? One more hour. <laughs> so that was interesting. But then someone discovered technology. And so now when you walk into this what? particular conference, I <laughs> yeah, no, no you get given a little device that looks a lot like a BlackBerry, but it's not. And the only reason I say like a BlackBerry is because it's got a full physical QWERTY keyboard and oh, okay. numbers on there. In this process, you use all of two digits. Use one of the two. That's yeah, right. It. So so you've got the full keyboard, but because you're only using two digits, did that create any problems? Were people misvoting, donkey voting, because they were smashing the keyboard? <laughs> Probably, <laughs> but it just didn't register. That I tried because, yeah, okay. of Mashing. course, I was interested. I tried, what happened <laughs> when you press other things? <laughs> of course you tested I wanted to type in yes and no, and that did nothing at all. So it actually did work. There was a third button you could press, sorry. There was a third one. If you couldn't quite get your vote right, if you voted one for yes when you're meant to vote two for no. So we're talking about hopefully something that doesn't happen very often. Oh, no, I've misvoted. Uh, there was a red button as well, which would undo your vote. So I tried that one to see if it actually worked. And yes, it did work. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's right. So now 
when there's something where it might be a close vote, then someone calls out division. That means that we need to do a count. So no longer do they have to hold your hand up. You can imagine how much that slowed it down. It was, okay, pull your voting machines out. I'm not sure if they've got a better name than voting machine, but pull your voting machines out and let's do a vote on this one. And of course, within, I think you were given 15 seconds to do the vote, press your one or your two, bang, done, up on screen comes the result. Fantastic. And I thought, isn't that just a great little example of a, simple, a really mm. simple concept mm. and something that gives you an instant result. Now, we didn't see... Did anyone dispute it and well, say that the voting machines were rigged? I was waiting for that. No, <laughs> I definitely won that vote. What are you saying? 80-20, there was no way it was only 20% of that vote. So there weren't some suspicious looking characters at the door with dark hoodies on hacking into the... Well, I didn't see them. Maybe they were so clever that they weren't seen. Maybe they're in the basement of the building. But I'm pretty confident that they were pretty right. And you got a bit of a feel when the vote was a bit close. You kind of went, oh, I reckon that was a yes on that one. Mm. And the vote might come up, say, 55-45. And, you know, it was close enough to go for the voting machines. But, yeah, there weren't any wild accusations. I, I actually should have done that as a bit of fun. But I don't I don't know if anyone would have appreciated as much as you would have appreciated. <laughs> yeah, just to slow the procedure down a little right. bit. If you had been there, I would have done it. At least Dominion, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Mm. Don't brand, don't name a brand. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, no no processes here are involving the fact that we might be casting any any sort of aspersions uh, <laughs> on Dominion I want to fully endorse all elections that have occurred in America, regardless of how they were done. That's right. Regardless of the brand, most importantly. <laughs> Alrighty then. In today's show, a smorgasbord awaits you all. For anyone on the market for a Tesla Cybertruck, the advice is make sure you're committed. Now, there's some good news coming out for the Toyota faithful who've been holding out on uh, for developments on the next generation of green travel. And if you've been saving up for that big NFT purchase, then you may wish to rethink your investment portfolio, maybe get into ostrich eggs or something. More on that story later on. But let's kick off with a story that was responsible for huge chunks of hair been, being torn out from millions of scalps in frustration across Australia earlier this month. It was, of course, a major communications upheaval that left Australia hanging on a busted line. Optus, one of the country's leading telcos, has faced a storm of criticism uh, and a Senate inquiry after a massive network outage. Matt, what the hell went down with this digital debacle? And this is the interesting part. We do know a little bit more information about what went down, but I want to talk about the outage to start with. There was a CEO of a large telco that I had a chat to probably two years ago. And in that conversation, he said that it's interesting, five years previous to that, that telco had had an outage for about an hour on their mobile phone network. And people went, eh, that was about it. There was a couple of people a bit annoyed and mm. there wasn't much really that happened. About five years later, so around the time I was having the conversation with this particular CEO, they'd had an outage uh, maybe a month or two beforehand for probably a similar amount of time. And he said the difference in the reaction from the public was huge. Mm. People have gotten to the point where they rely so much on all of their things on their smartphone. Exactly. And it's not just phone calls, it's all the data and all those services that are connected. Now, that was a couple of years ago I had that conversation. Fast forward now, Telstra, sorry, Optus had a 13 and a half hour outage, which is not just a little one hour outage during the business day. So it started about 4 a.m. and it went through for mm. obviously 13 and a half hours yeah. from that particular point in time. Approximately 10.2 million customers were impacted by it. Droves of people left Optus during this process. And it seems a bit overreactionary, but it just gives you an idea of how much 
we rely on our devices now. Mm. And you, I, mean, I had conversations with people that said they didn't know it was out. They went in, they ordered their morning coffee, they went to pay, oh. their connection to the outside world wasn't working, they couldn't pay with their phone. I don't have any cash, I don't have any cards. Oh, what do I do? It didn't really matter because the coffee, coffee operator probably couldn't take a payment anyway. <laughs> so it's just... So everyone was washing dishes that day. Exactly right. They're yeah. the cleanest dishes ever. <laughs> but just so many things that we do with our phone that you just don't think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about getting into my business. I use my phone to turn my alarm off. Mm. What about if I couldn't do that? Oh, what's the code? I've got to remember the code to punch mm. in an old-fashioned keypad. That's so yesterday. It's so just it's, how we live. It's, it's just everything you do. Obviously, there were some major problems from technical, emergencies, medicine. So triple O was down, obviously, for some people. So that's obviously a bad thing. So there were some things that were a greater impact. I did have some people say to me, it does sound like a bit of a first world problem. And mm. for some it was, oh, no, I can't check my social media. I kind of get that maybe it was good to switch off for 13 and a half hours. But for other people, it had a major, major impact, obviously. The other really tricky part was some people, in frustration, as I said, left and said, I'm going to another carrier. Okay, that's fine. Some of the other carriers are actually using the Optus network. Ah. So uh, I'm going to go to Amazim. That'll show them. Well, Amazim <laughs> actually uses Optus, so that doesn't help you that much. But then if you did want to go to another carrier... That do your homework, people. But do anyway, your yeah. homework. That was actually using their own network, so not the Optus network. One of the things that's in place with all the carriers now to try and stop scammers, try and stop identity theft, is two-step verification, 2SV. So you walk in, hi, I'm James, I'd like to switch my phone service from Optus to another carrier. Certainly, to make sure we know that you really are James, we want to see your ID, and then we're going to get a text message sent to your phone to prove that you have control of that. Oh, what? You can't get a text message at the moment. <laughs> so when you wanted to change, when you said, that's it, I'm gone, well, it was actually quite difficult. Now, the other carriers... i a whole bunch of Basil Fawlties around the... <laughs> The state of the country, you know, <laughs> jump out and clutching the back of their head. That's right. So they did put some Caught steps in place to, to actually get around that problem. But you can see the issue there, there's good steps in place yeah. to try and stop fraud. And here was something where people just wanted to change over. Now, what was the cause of it all? This was what lots of people have been asking, including senators at a Senate inquiry, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Tell us what happened. And it's simplistic but incredibly complicated. What you've got now is, I know it doesn't sound very good, does it? Yeah. <laughs> what you've got now, if, if I make a phone call from, well, in the same town, in the same community, depending where the switching network, the central switching network goes, that phone call to go to my next door neighbour might travel 1,000 kilometres, might travel 500 kilometres. It depends yeah, fair enough, yeah. where those switching networks are. The routers that are along those connections need to know where to find something else that's switching. Now, back in the old days, there was a person sitting there with a manual switchboard. Ah, oh, you're after the Eddie residence. I'll just plug you in a number 15. Oh, yeah. Automated. And then listen to your conversation. <laughs> that's right. Oh, James, I didn't <laughs> yes. know that you'd, you'd go on <laughs> DUI. It was a terrible time to be a gossip in those days, wasn't it? A great time to be a anyway. gossip. <laughs> so the process there is obviously that's an automated switching. We, we've got now all our networks are automated switching, but they've got to know where to go. Now, one of those routers, supposedly by a third-party provider, not by Optus, one of their trusted partners, did an update, a regular update on one of the routers, and they were updating some of the routing processes. Now, these are being updated all the time because they're putting new parts of the network in, they're building out the network, they're building redundancy in to try and stop phone calls falling over, mm. or if it gets too congested, they want some redundancy built in. And so what happened was there was a mistake made there, 
presumably on one router, but then to keep the network up to date, that would be propagated through all the routers across the network. And that's why it's slowly shut down. So people were saying, oh, there's an Optus down or Optus outage. Oh, mine's working. Half an hour later, oh, mine's not working anymore. And then, here's the clincher, to fix that problem, normally you'd gain remote access to the routers to fix them. But of course, Optus couldn't gain remote access because the routing protocols were wrong. (laughs) So they had to send physical technicians out good old-fashioned yeah. people. To press the button. Well, to update the routing protocols and then probably reboot the router. Yeah, okay. So that's why different <laughs> Have parts... you tried turning it on and off again? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Every Optus technician, turn it on and off. But that was why it came on uh, in certain okay. stages across the country. So really fascinating process. Now, I know the Australian government and senators are there jumping up and down saying, well, we've got to make sure this can never happen again. I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can make sure it never happens again. There was one report about hackers from China getting in and affecting the network. I don't know that we've got any more credibility around that. Maybe it was spread by Optus, who knows? But I think the the routing update was probably the most likely scenario. But again, how do you stop that? Humans make errors sometimes, equipment fails sometimes. I don't think you can put anything in place that would make the network so that it was... Infallible. It could never fail. And that phrase, is I find it more and more frustrating every day that you hear it. We've got to stop this from ever happening again. <laughs> That's right. We can never have any unforeseeable accidents ever again. That's right. Uh, and, and how do you stop an unforeseeable accident? Well, it's unforeseeable. So by definition... And it's not like this is happening on a regular basis. It was happening on a regular basis. You go, we're going to do something to stop this from ever happening again. I get that. But when it's a one-off and it's never happened before... It's That's just, right. And I guarantee... It won't happen again in terms of a routing update that propagates across the network that stops the whole network, but there'll be something else the next there'll time around. There'll be something else. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So I'm sorry to deliver bad news to our listeners, but at some point in time, you'll probably lose communications no matter which carrier you're with. None of them are immune to these sort of problems, and the networks are complicated. The old telegraph yeah. line that ran from Darwin down to Adelaide was pretty simple. Something stopped, send out a horse and a rider along that line, yeah. and you'll find it's broken somewhere patch it together, and it's fixed again. But it's a bit more complicated yeah, than that Somewhere now. along the line, we got we stopped adjusting when things go wrong, and we just fell over <laughs> and kicked and screamed like a toddler. And, um, yeah, I think I there's just, a lot of that. There, there's a lot of that, that these days. There's, there's zero resilience uh, in times of, of a minor crisis. And 13 hours, yeah, yeah I know, and my apologies to people who you know, did suffer. Um, but, yeah, we got through it. Yeah, yeah, we managed to get through and, it. And we will continue to do so. Do you remember the launch of the Tesla Cybertruck? I kind of had an early... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, in, from my memory, it had an early 80s futuristic dream vibe about it. Something that might have appeared in an early Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, if you catch my drift. And then... He threw the brick at the the window. (laughs) You remember that? Good times. Well, apparently the Cybertrucks start hitting the road at the end of November and Elon Musk has attached some interesting rules to the ownership contract, Matt. It wasn't just one steel ball he threw at the window, though. It failed the first time. It was a steel ball. A steel ball, but when the first one failed, he went, well, maybe that window was 40. I'll just throw it at this. Oh, uh, that one didn't work either. But the production one, that'll be fine. Must, must stop throwing these steel balls at windows. <laughs> That's right. So they have been, it was actually 21st of November 2019 was when the Cybertruck 
was launched. And mm. as you say, I like that feel, that Arnie Schwarzenegger feel to it. Yeah, it, it really has a sort of running man sort of feel to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've talked about it before. Elon has the Thomas Edison feel that you come out and make a grand promise and you get people excited about it and then you go back to the team and say, now, how do we build do this thing? <laughs> <laughs> so they've been doing that for the last four years. Yeah. Now they're ready to start rolling off the production line in limited quantities. I don't think they've got to the stage where I describe it as mass production yet with the Cybertruck. But have they got the orders to warrant? Oh, my like gosh, that? have they got the orders? Seriously? Yes. Yeah, right. And okay. again, Tesla have done some clever things in the past where they take lots of orders and they take deposits and they use that as a bankrolling process. Yeah, what a okay. great concept. Let's let these people putting deposits on that aren't gaining an interest bankroll your company. So uh. if you can get people excited about it, why not? Mm. So they've had the orders, no problems at all. They're ready to start rolling off the production line end of November, so we're not far away. But in the contract, they've added a little clause. And that clause says, once you take delivery of this Cybertruck, it's yours for 12 months. You cannot resell it for 12 months unless you're happy to pay $50,000 penalty. Wow. Now, the logic here is that there's going to be high demand. And if I'm not on that order list and I've got a lot of money, I might say, I'll buy anyone's Cybertruck. If you bought one, I'll pay you uh, 20 grand extra, 30 grand okay. extra. And people I'll pay just buying them and then making money on their purchase. Correct. Now, we've seen a shortage with other manufacturers in the past couple of years, since the pandemic, really, where some car manufacturers are saying that their cars are being sold off the lot, brand new, and someone's reselling the next day for 10 grand on top. So mm. there's been that going on for a little while. I actually think some people will pay the 50 grand penalty because I think some people will get more than 50 grand for it. Yeah, you reckon, yeah. But I was interested in it. I was starting to think about why you would care at all. If someone buys your product and then someone else is happy to pay more for that product on the secondhand market, well, it seems like that's a bit of hype, that's a bit of interest, and it seems like there's a lot of value in that product. So I'm not sure mm. why Tesla would care that much. Maybe they're trying to really make sure that people keep buying them from Tesla, but presumably that person that sells it, he'll buy another one, he'll pocket that money and put another order in for the next one that comes off the production line eventually and sell that one maybe. So I don't really understand why they're that concerned about it, but it gives you an idea that Tesla does things a bit differently. Mm. I can't think of any other manufacturer that has put such a clause on a product you sell. Now, I'm not a solicitor, but I don't even know if it's legal. If you buy a product from me and then you own it, who am I to tell you <laughs> what you can do with it after you buy it? But having said that, you can't buy it without signing the purchase agreement. Yeah. And the purchase agreement has this clause in there. So presumably, they've got some lawyers that have got a few more skills than I have in legal matters that have got that and saying it's okay. Well, besides, you know, having a 12-month date from, from the 30th of November, how they would even police it? How do you know when a vehicle sold? Well, actually... Normally with a Tesla, because I have sold a Tesla, you normally remove it from your app and then the other person takes Uh, over. So then you'd have to say to someone, look, I'll just leave it in my app, okay? That means I can track where your car is and go and get into it and drive it anytime I like. And the other person might say, (laughs) not that comfortable with that. So to get it out of that, you might think- $50,000, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's all of that to consider. Obviously, the main thing here is getting them up to production volume that- they can satisfy the demand, the huge demand that's there. If you do want to sell it and you do actually ask Tesla for permission, they'll nominate a price. Their price is, they think the resale value should be whatever you paid for it, minus about 25 cents per kilometre that you've driven at that point. So if you wanted to buy it and sell it straight away, it would be basically worth the same price you paid for it. Mm -hmm. If you had a legitimate reason to sell it, you've driven it for 
20,000 kilometres and then suddenly you've lost your job and you've got no money and you go, oh, I've got this asset sitting there. I've hit hard times, I want to sell it. Well, Tesla will say, sure, but here's a fair and reasonable price that you can sell it for. In fact, we might even buy it back off you at that fair and reasonable price. Okay. And I think they'd then put a markup on it and sell it as a second-hand <laughs> one, but that's a, another issue altogether. Give it a detail and, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Obviously, <laughs> there's demand for these. They are interesting in the way they look. Yeah, I just... I'm struggling to see the appeal. Mm, so uh, aesthetically, yeah, it's uh, it's different. It's certainly different. But yeah. Tesla has that ability, the same as some companies like Apple do, to get fans excited about it, no matter what yeah. they do. Maybe it's this feeling that maybe Marty McFly might step out of it, and <laughs> maybe, you know, it's, it's got a bit of a DeLorean feel about it. <laughs> maybe. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> good luck to those people who are getting those first orders rolling off. But bad luck if you are only buying them to resell it. They've been promising for a while now that they were going to make a break into the next generation vehicle market, and now Toyota have finally done it. The much-anticipated hydrogen-powered high-ace van is about to hit the market. It's putting a new spin on the eco-friendly travel, and it might have your name written all over it. Matt, are you sold on the hydrogen-powered high-ace? Well, I would be sold on it if I could buy one today, and I'm not sure that Toyota is doing this. So they made a big announcement. So it's in four years' time they'll actually come out with it. Is that what you're saying? Maybe it's something They're like that. Start throwing steel balls at. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, They've anyway. got a prototype that says, "Well, at the moment it's okay. It's got 120 kilowatts of power. Not great, especially when it's a high ace, which might be cutting around people, might be cutting mm. around tools. It's only got a 200 kilometer range." So not much compared to... So, yeah, hydrogen power is supposed to give us all this extra range. Well, I think the major convenience of it is that you can refuel quickly, yeah. just like normal petrol, but you're doing it every 200 kilometres. So mm. you're stopping at a hydrogen refuelling station, which there aren't a lot of around at the moment. In fact, I can't remember seeing too many at all. Yeah. But I think at least we're thinking differently, and I think at least Toyota, who may well have said, mm, we missed the boat on that EV thing. Maybe we should have just looked a continue to innovate we're used to innovate and yeah and so they they have talked about hydrogen a lot but i think they've been doing that because they missed the ev boat they mm. missed that and they feel they're so far behind if we get up to speed on hydrogen and start making announcements around hydrogen they've got some very faithful some very loyal customers some of those loyal customers will say you know what i'll keep driving hybrids and when when they finally get these hydrogens nailed then i'm right now my general big picture futuristic view of what vehicles will be in five years' time or ten years' time is that I think that EVs will be what light passenger vehicles are. I think hydrogen mm. will be used for heavy haulage trucks, maybe even Pantech-type trucks. When you've got a large, heavy load that's going to start to drain a battery a lot quicker and when the job that you've got relies on keeping that on the road. So in other words, a truck that's hauling things around, that's, that's taking bulk goods from A to B and when it's parked somewhere it's not earning money mm. they're the times I think you'd want hydrogen so you can refuel easily and obviously stay on the road but for light vehicles even for Toyota Hiaces I still think EVs are the way to go and our batteries are getting better as we know mm. so in 5 years time in 10 years time more charging stations better batteries a thousand kilometres range maybe maybe you don't need that 500 kilometres range with good charging stations regularly so mm. I like the fact that at least Toyota's recognising that they can't just keep producing internal combustion engine vehicles. Mm, yeah. That's a positive without a doubt. So fantastic. Well done, Toyota. You've seen what the rest of the world is doing. 
is a 200-kilometer range, 120-kilowatt-powered high-ace hydrogen prototype going to satisfy everyone? Maybe not. The other thing I want to mention... Yeah, we should point out, too, by the way, because we might have some new listeners here going, but what about the hybrids? But what about the hybrids? The ones that Toyota have been advertising, oh, we've been into electrics for a long time. <laughs> um, we're a bit sceptical about that. But anyway, we should... Dig- oh, I've digressed. We no, should no, move on. it's yeah. worth digressing because the Prius was introduced around 1999. Mm. And I love the Prius. The concept was great. I think the first Prius I bought was about 2005, and I've owned a variety of... Toyota and Lexus hybrids over the years. In 2005, in 1999, great technology and way ahead of the rest of the world. Unfortunately, in 2023, Mm, they've got... That's right. They've got that same hybrid technology. Unfortunately, all a hybrid does is reduces the amount of fuel you're burning. So it's a more efficient internal combustion engine vehicle, but it's not a game changer. Mm. And I think that's where we're at with the Teslas of the world, with lots of the traditional manufacturers, a game changer. One thing I did find really interesting in this, though, was that this particular highest van uses a V6 twin turbo engine that's been modified for hydrogen. So maybe rather than doing a whole fuel cell, maybe than doing a whole different way of actually converting your hydrogen into motion, by using a normal engine, maybe there's some hope here for some retrofitting of vehicles. Yeah, right. So it doesn't produce any carbon dioxide. It does release a bit of... Nox, some nitrogen oxides, which not great yeah. from a health perspective. Yeah, particularly if you don't like acid rain as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So not perfect. But again, I actually saw that as a positive from a retrofitting because let's face it, if everyone started buying EVs or hydrogen vehicles tomorrow, we've still got a lot of vehicles on the road. Now, don't hold me to these numbers, but roughly in Australia, we buy about a million cars a year, new cars a year. Mm. But on the roads, I think I, I read some research months ago now that had about 15 million vehicles on the road. So it's mm. going to take us a while to convert all those over. But if you could retrofit back to hydrogen with a normal engine, that sounds pretty exciting. I have no idea what they had to do to convert that. It might be ridiculously expensive. It might be impractical. But I thought that was interesting that they're introducing a new Toyota Hi-Ace hydrogen with a V6 twin turbo engine in it, which sounds like you're not really trying to change the game. They've got their manufacturing set up for internal combustion engines. Let's keep using that. So please, Toyota, we really want you to get on board. To kick up a revolution. Fridge tech has been a bit of a thing in recent decades. Some nifty tech has lent on connecting to the internet, which for mine seemed a bit of a random stretch, and other models want to offer a sneak peek uh, without opening even the doors. It's felt for a while like fridge designers have been under a bit of pressure. Well, the good people at Whirlpool have come up with a new fridge that might really start busting into people's kitchens. Slimmer doors and bigger spaces sound like a genuinely practical step towards some revolutionary kitchen design, Matt. I hadn't actually thought of these poor people out there with internet-connected fridges when they had the Optus outage. Imagine that. What would you do? How would you know what to order to put in your fridge to keep your fridge stocked up? So (laughs) there were some other issues that I hadn't considered in this process until you mentioned internet-connected fridges. But this is interesting... I want to talk a little bit about just the history of refrigeration, but I don't think we give enough credit to refrigeration. Fire. Everyone talks about fire. When mankind kind of 
discovered fire. I'm not sure if you discovered fire. You saw a, a fire across the horizon somewhere and went, there's some big burning thing I don't want to go near. But I suppose when they started control fire, then you could use that to keep you warm. Yeah. You could use it for cooking, protection probably, because you probably could put a bit of fire around your campsite and keep away some of those marauding animals. So that was a pretty important process for humans. But what about refrigeration? Once you started to be able to preserve foods, reduce food waste, improve food safety, mm. surely that's had a huge impact on health. Oh, it was a big stuff. Um, a step up from uh, having to salt everything to, <laughs> yeah, to Bilio right. or um, or just having like wet rags hung around the outside of your, your, your cupboard. Yeah, wet rags and a bit of breeze going through yeah. and hoping that it'd be enough. So when we go back, we look at refrigeration. William Cullen first demonstrated artificial cooling in 1748. But Jacob Perkins, I give most of the credit to, he came up with the first vapour compression cycle. So he turned that into a refrigerator, and basically that was really the start of refrigeration in 1834. We go through a range of different ones over the years. Probably the start of maybe modern refrigeration was probably about 1913 when Fred Wolf, the American, had the first home electric refrigerator. Probably relied on electricity yeah. then as well. <laughs> um, so that was pretty impressive. Then when you jump forward a bit from that, they had refrigerators with foam because there was no point cooling it all down if it yeah. then lost that coolth. Instantly. I'm sure that's a word. Yeah, yeah instantly. <laughs> Why not? Warmth, coolth, surely yeah. there's a word there. So having all of this wonderful technology in the doors, in the walls to try and keep the heat out and keep the cool in made sense. It's probably been about 60 years since we've seen any major change in the foam that's inside a refrigerator. Now, I don't know how it happened, but sorry, can I just interrupt you there? CFCs were introduced somewhere in the 50s, I think, maybe early 60s. Um, you remember CFCs, that yeah. nasty demon that destroyed our own zone, ozone layer. Yep. Apparently the guy who developed that for refrigeration was also the guy who put lead in petrol too to stop the engine knocking. He's and made some major contributions there to is, is, <laughs> for, for one person to do more damage to the environment than him, that would take some remarkable steps. So it, that guy and to be the, fair, I think that was back around the early 1900s, maybe 1920s, that at least the CFC and maybe the, the lead was there as well. To be fair, I think they were great solutions at the time, at the time. without the greater knowledge of the impact. I'm sure That's he didn't right. go, you know what, this helps us with refrigeration. Damn that ozone, who cares about that? So, <laughs> Well, yeah, and the other thing was is it was small numbers back then yeah. and you know, had no idea how big that was going to go. So. That's right. So yeah. now refrigerators obviously – Different change there in the gas we use for that compression cycle. Yeah. So we don't have CFCs in there anymore, which is fantastic. So that's good. But the foam, the foam hasn't changed mm. for about 60 years. So that's interesting because we focus a lot on some parts of technology and miss the obvious. And that's, I think, exactly what's happened here. They've been focusing on the motor, the compression, the gas cycle, all sorts of wonderful things. As you say, internet connected, see through the door, tap on the door to let it light up inside, all sorts of things. Fancy stuff. Meanwhile, you've still got these big, thick doors, and you see how big a fridge is, and then you open it up, it's the opposite of a TARDIS. It's a lot smaller inside than you think it should be. So Whirlpool said, why don't we do a bit of vacuum dooring? They haven't come up with a really sexy name for it yet. Actually, they're calling it Slim Tech for the right. fridge. But essentially, they've Vacuum said... Vacuum dooring. Well, that's my, me, that's my term. That's that'll, what do, so. that'll do me. But they've basically got a double-skinned door and walls, and they've got a vacuum. Now, of course, 
you and I both know it's not going to be a perfect vacuum. Mm. It's going to be much lower density air than on the outside. So even space isn't a perfect vacuum. You've got some molecules out there. But with that low density, with call it a near vacuum if you like, it's not going to be able to have convection or radiation go through that door easily. But the beauty of it is you can have a much thinner door. So we're talking about a reduction in wall thickness of about 60%. So a typical wall or door is about five centimetres. They're down to about two centimetres now. So what Whirlpool have found with that is if you want the same outside size of the fridge, you can actually get a 25% larger internal capacity just by reducing the thickness of the walls and the door. Mm. So it sounds bleedingly obvious when we talk about it. And when you think about coffee cups and water bottles that have got a vacuum, again, a near vacuum seal between the walls, and you go, gee, that coffee cup, that's fantastic. It doesn't feel hot in my hand and the coffee's really hot still. That's just done by having Mm. nothing for that heat to go through between well, the right. two walls. Well, that's right. Heat's got to be transported. Uh, well, it can be transported by radiation, but um, but convection or conduction, that requires the particles, doesn't it? Well, so sorry, that'd be right, wouldn't it? It'd be conduction. I said radiation before. It'd be conduction and convection. And convection is not going to be uh, carrying the heat when you haven't got the particles, but radiation will. Yeah. But the radiation would be much less. Yeah, so the conduction and the convection mm. would be what you're normally using to get heat from some surface to another by the particles that are there. Bingo. Yeah. Now, the foam, when you've got foam, obviously, then effectively what you're doing is you're trapping little gas particles in that polyurethane foam. Yes. So you're trying to stop that movement of air going through there. But yeah. if there's not much air for it to move through, bingo, you've got a really good example of not that heat being transmitted. So bingo. really clever. Love it. Love it. the simple concept. When I say simple, it's obviously got to be manufactured in such a way that they can take most of that air out and make it strong enough that it doesn't collapse with the external air pressure, all sorts of things, I'm sure. But Whirlpool have got this now. They've got fridges being released next year that have got this slim tech technology. It won't take long before every other manufacturer says, ooh, I yeah. like that idea. How about that? Surely you can't patent a vacuum. Surely that's something that you, is not patentable. The name SlimTech, I'm sure, is, but the actual process, maybe not. So yeah, expect- I, I'm, a, I'm a take it or leave it on the internet connection, but I reckon the whole Slimline fridge yeah, it sounds no, good, I might it? be sold on that one. Today we're diving into a futuristic tale, but it's not science fiction. Imagine parks where your phone charges wirelessly, Wi-Fi floats through the air, and Barbies chat with your smartphone. That's the buzz in Australia's innovative smart parks. (laughs) So there is a park in Perth called Honeycomb Park, and it's a bit of an example. It's done by NBN Co. to show you what you could do if you really wanted to take advantage of all the technology. And I love the concept. Something as simple as an outdoor barbecue. We see them in lots of parks. We see them all over the place where it's just an outdoor barbecue. It might have some money you've got to put into it or a credit card you've got to tap or it might just be a button you press and it works for 10 minutes, 15 minutes or whatever and then your steak's not cooking that well. So That's right. Do I have to press the button again or is there a time out on that? we've been using that technology for 40 years or so. At least. That's right. to crank it up. So they built one and I'd love to see one in our area. They built one so far. So first thing, you turn up there, you've got good high-speed Wi-Fi. Why not? NBN's doing this, so of course it should be good high-speed internet. So you connect your devices, your phone, iPads, whatever, to the Wi-Fi. Fantastic. Then, oh, gee, I'm using my Wi-Fi a fair bit. I might be draining my battery. So of course... 
the bench has got wireless charging, as you mentioned, built into it. So you just sit your phone on certain designated spots on the bench and it will charge up your phone. You go, well, that's good, Wi-Fi, charge my phone. It's got some USB ports as well in case you've got an older phone that doesn't charge wirelessly. Well, that sounds all okay, but doesn't sound that revolutionary. Right, let's get this barbecue cranked up. Hold on, there's no button there. There's a QR code. So now you scan the QR code and you can actually start the barbecue, monitor the barbecue, with the app that you download for that particular barbecue. So you can know when it's not working for That's you. right, so you know. Because your phone will say, this isn't working for That's you. That's right, you look at it and you go, Rather temperature zero. sitting there with your sausages, not sizzling. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, the first thing I thought of is, there are some devious people out there, so they'd go home and they'd go, <laughs> I'm going to turn off that barbecue right now, I reckon there's someone down there using it, uh, Sunday morning, I'll just sit at home and turn it off. But no, they've got geolocation on the app so that you can turn on that barbecue while you're in that close vicinity, uh-huh. move out of that little geolocation ring, you can no longer turn on that barbecue. Lights the same. You can right. turn on the lights while you're there, turn off the lights while you're there, but as soon as you move away, you don't have control of those lights. Otherwise, you can imagine there'd be some people out there who might think it's funny, might think it's a prank, or just might be devious and want to just go and turn lights on and off on a random barbecue they have on their app. So again, by using that geolocation, so it's showing off the things you can do. There's even plants I would have never that- have thought of that, Matt. You're a really <laughs> devious sort of a person who have thought of that. Well, I was trying to think how a devious person might think. Does that sound <laughs> <Okay>. better? <laughs> and then they've it. even got plants there. If you reckon you've got a bit of a green thumb, you can water the plants. Again, while you're in that geolocation, you can go in and turn the watering on. I assume they've got an automated system as well. So if people don't water the plants, the plants still survive. But it's just showing off what you can do because you can do all these things around your home. Yeah. But showing them off that you can do that while you're sitting there, just basically using this technology, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So, again, one demonstration park. I love to see how the reports go once people use it. I did think about the possibility that someone turns up and they mightn't have a smartphone. They might have left their phone at home because they want to have some fun with the kids and they go, Oh, what? But I then thought, who would ever leave their phone at home? Or maybe an Optus customer would. But apart from that, (laughs) I don't know that people would leave their phone at home. And I think most people have got a smartphone. If not themselves, there would be someone in the group. I'm assuming they're not having a barbecue by themselves. There'd be someone in the group Mm. that would have a smartphone that would say, okay, I'll download the app and I'll go and turn the barbecue on. So a good demonstration, maybe technology for the sake of technology, but a good demonstration of what What you can do. What about all those boomers who hate using technology, though? They can't have their sausages. They can't have a barbecue oh, anymore. Yeah. Or take take some younger people with them and say, just take young Jimmy, can you just crank up the barbecue for me? Do you love skiing but hate being buried by aval- avalanches? Me too. It's one of those things that stops me from hitting the slopes each year. Besides, of course, the huge expenses, the enormous queues, the lack of skill or high risk of major injury... Well, apparently you needn't sweat the avalanche thing anymore, at least because technology has yet again come to the rescue. Matt, pour the St. Bernard another bowl of brandy and hand me an ugly sweater because my ski season just got a whole lot more enticing. It does, doesn't it? If you're not going to be exposed to those avalanches. And the problem is that avalanches are becoming more common now because we're getting this earth heating up a little bit. So yeah, that's, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. So those mm. bits of snow on slopes when there's a bit more heat in the air, they're more likely to let go and suddenly you've got a Mm. bit of snow over the top of you, which doesn't sound like fun. I haven't been in one. I don't plan on being in one. Mm. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun though. But a few things. The first part is we'd like to know about it so we can stay away from the slopes, prevent it maybe, but then if you are in one, maybe have some way of helping out. So on the first step, knowing when, 
They've got some pretty interesting processes now with some cameras trained at some slopes, combined with weather stations, and then feeding that back into an AI tool to analyse lots of avalanches that have occurred over the years Mm -hmm. to get indicators about when an avalanche is more likely. So just like when you see sharks on the beach, shark warning, you'll see various indicators from an AI perspective. Okay, avalanche likelihood today, 88%. I might just stay home today. Avalanche likelihood 5%. Okay, I feel safe to go on the slopes. That will get better as we learn or as AI learns more about the slopes and the snow and the, the actual heat and the various bits and pieces. They also use drones in that to actually get a bit of information on the slopes. Hopefully they're not really big drones that then set off an avalanche. I'm assuming <laughs> they're small enough they can just gather the yeah, information. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then the prevention side of it, I haven't got any great solutions there from a technology perspective, but if you happen to be in one, a couple of good things. I mean, that sounds bad, good things in an avalanche. But they say that if you're buried in an avalanche, you've got about 15 minutes. There's a bit of oxygen around you, not a lot, but a bit of oxygen around you that you can keep breathing and you can dig your way out a bit and, of course, people from above. So after about 15 minutes, the likelihood that you're going to be a survivor, minimal. Unless you've got a device, and I'll name the device, it's called a Safe Back SBX. It's just a device you put on your back in a backpack as you go skiing, not that large, but it's got two important things in there. First of all, it's got some oxygen. So if you happen to be in an avalanche and you find yourself under a bit of snow, you can start panicking or you can just pull out the oxygen, a bit like I assume some sort of oxygen mask like in an aeroplane or similar, but you've got access to some oxygen and that'll keep you going for about 90 minutes. Now, 90 minutes to get someone to be dug out of of being under snow sounds like a a much more reasonable time than 15 minutes. 15 minutes doesn't sound long, especially when there's an avalanche that's gone. Any other person up on the slope is probably not up on the slope anymore. You've got to get people up there, etc. But it's also got a bit like an EPIRB. It's got a beacon that is sent out to say, I'm here, so a bit better for directing where you might start digging. And they've also got drones that do two things. One, they'll look for that EPIRB signal so they can narrow down where it is. But also, they've got drones with some heat sensing that's sensitive enough to get people that are buried under the snow. Now, you'd think, my first thought was, having a couple of metres of snow above me, surely it's not going to detect my little warmth of my body or any sort of radiation coming from my body. But the good part is that the snow is very cold, so any bit of heat underneath there is a bit easier to pick up. If it was out in a temperature of 30 degrees, for example, in the ambient air and you're trying to pick up a human body in that, it might be harder. But because you've got those extremes, very cold, maybe zero degrees Celsius-ish, and you've got a human body that might be 38, then it's a bit easier to pick up. So when it does happen, the drones can go out there and pick up people with an EPIRB or pick up people just on the heat signature or radiation from their body. So does that make you feel like you want to go skiing now or you're still a bit A little concerned? bit more, but, but only a little bit more. <laughs> only a little bit. <laughs> but it is interesting that we're having to address some problems that weren't problems 10 years ago because yeah. some changes are occurring. Well, I like the idea of the early detection as well. So we did a little bit of a warning yeah. uh, in advance. Yep. Maybe don't hit the slope today. But, uh, as long as you don't get it while you're up on the slopes, text come through, right, today, yeah, 88%, what? what? <laughs> that noise that you're hearing in the background. Yeah, that's a definite yeah. sign. <laughs> Cartoonish capers to crypto crunches, I never imagined to get into the roller coaster world of NFTs. There seemed to be a lot of money changing hands over nothing tangible that I could really make out at all. 
but there was big money to be made, nevertheless. And it appears that the well and tr- that I well and truly m- missed my chance to make a million bucks out of creating semi-appealing doodles. Matt, I hear that the boat has sailed on that one, and it's finally run aground. You did also miss your chance to lose a lot of money. Oh. So there's that to think there about we as well. Go, right. <laughs> there's two words I've got when I think about NFTs, and that's tulip mania. And we have talked about it before, of oh, course, yes. back in the Netherlands, yeah. back I think 1700s, maybe 1600s, where tulips were suddenly the thing. Mm-hmm. There was no inherent value or extra value in tulips, but the price of tulips went through the roof just because that's what people paid for them. Mm. And I feel a bit the same as NFTs. Now, we must say on here, we've talked about it before, we don't give financial advice. Lots of people were sending messages at one stage to me about crypto. What should I do with my crypto? What type of crypto should I buy? What cryptocurrencies uh, and all the rest of it? And of course, we said at the time, we don't want to give advice, but from my personal perspective, the amount, of, <laughs> the amount of crypto that I own is zero, if that gives you any indication. NFTs, the number of NFTs I own is approximately the same as the amount of cryptocurrency I own, which is about zero. Because again, I couldn't see <laughs> the inherent... <laughs> Somewhere floating around the... Yeah, the plus or minus zero. zero. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't see the inherent value in an NFT. And when you had Jack Dorsey selling his first tweet as an NFT, I just thought the world has gone crazy. (laughs) Then you saw a whole range of other things. The Bored Ape Yacht Club produced a bunch of NFTs. They were selling for millions of dollars. I can't believe one recently sold for $212,000, but that was bought originally for millions of dollars. So even though $212,000 sounds like a huge sum of money for a bit of digital art, then 212,000 sounds a lot less than the millions of dollars paid for it. To give you an idea, if you want to put some numbers around it, the trading volume at the beginning of 2022 on, for NFTs was approximately $12.6 billion across the world. Now the last month I've got data for, which was just the last, as in October, then the trading volume was $1.39 billion. Now, there's two things that says to me, mm. what a big drop from $12.6 billion to yeah. $1.39 billion, but $1.39 billion? Really? Yeah, it's still there? <laughs> still there. Goodness me. So, yeah, they're just, I don't know, has no one heard Hans Christian Andersen's tale of the emperor's <laughs> new clothes? Because there's a naked emperor running around the place here, and some people are starting to go, oh, he's not wearing any clothes. It just sounded like a gamble, didn't it? When you buy something, me personally, again, my investment advice here, which I'm not giving, is that you want to actually see some inherent value. Mm. And when you see no inherent value in that bit of artwork, whatever it might be that you're buying, you struggle. Probs don't spend $212,000 on it. Probably not, or millions in that (laughs) case. Or millions, yeah. The funny part is that I saw a bit on The Simpsons recently, and The Simpsons obviously does have some things that are a bit of social commentary. Yeah. Obviously, tries to stay very current and very relevant. And obviously, various predictions that people will say, look at that, they predicted Donald Trump, they predicted COVID-19. But in a recent episode of The Simpsons, uh, they talked about some NFTs that Homer was trading. And as you can imagine, poor old Homer failed miserably in his investment process for the NFTs. They produced, I think, a, a digital world version of Homer and it, it went a bit crazy from that perspective. <laughs> but yeah. essentially, the value in that was almost nothing at the end of it all. So it kind of was a bit of a reflection on society, a bit of a, a, a poke fun. Yeah, poke fun at the rest of society. Today we're shifting gears to a story that's literally in reverse. Hold on to your hats as we delve into the electrifying tale 
of Rimax Nevera. I'm going to assume that's how you pronounce it. It's a hypercar that's not just fast forward, but record-breaking in reverse as well. Matt, forgive me. What is a hypercar? A hypercar is one level above a supercar. Oh, wow. Okay, right. Of course. It's got hyperspeed. And this thing goes fast backwards. How's your reversing skills? How quick can you get into those reverse parks? Yeah, I'm just wondering... Exactly why do you need to go really quick in reverse? I think it's at the stage with this particular vehicle, they've shown off what you can do with a production electric vehicle. And they've done everything they possibly can. And they did sit around, I'm sure, and said, what else can we do? anyone got any ideas? That's right. Now, to give you an idea. And one of the cleaners in the background went, you can see how fast it goes in reverse. I'm an expert reverser. (laughs) I can park with the best of them. So this thing does 412 kilometres an hour. Not that wow. useful when speed limits are normally 110. Yeah, that's right. It's got 1194 horsepower, so it's got a, a fair bit of acceleration. It's actually able to accelerate faster than an F1 car. Wow. So this is a production car you can buy and register to drive around the roads. Wow. The only problem is if you were going to buy it and register it, you'd just need to have $2.1 million for the purchase – not sure what the insurance premium would be like as well. Some people do, do complain about EVs being a little bit more expensive <laughs> to insure. That's money because they're a bit more expensive to buy. Yeah. But $2.1 million, I'm sure the insurance would be a little bit on that. But they've broken a few Guinness World Records for the fastest lap in a production car around certain tracks and the fast acceleration, the fast top speed, et cetera, et cetera. And it was at that point, oh, what else? And so, yeah, someone said, what about reverse? So they thought, well, that'll be interesting. <laughs> it's not built for airflow in reverse. It's built for airflow in the forward direction to keep it down on the ground. Obviously, when you're going fast, you yeah. don't want it taking off like an aeroplane. So I wonder if it'll work in reverse. So they did a few tests, did some wind tunnel testing. They went, oh, actually, it'll be okay because it is sloped at the back. So let's give it a crack. So they gave <laughs> it a crack and they did 241 kilometres an hour in reverse. Oh. Which is a Guinness World Record. So there's another record for this particular vehicle. Yeah, but you know when you're reversing and you're reversing fast, and you just wiggle the steering wheel just a little bit. <laughs> I hope they had a fair bit of room around this, them. Yeah, that's right. Because when you're steering from the rear wheels, that's a problem. Exactly right. So it's something <laughs> a bit difficult to control. Anyone who's oper- operated any of those trolleys that have got the, the steering wheel, the, 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 the actual wheels that, that steer yep. at the back... Well, even, that you can get into trouble in a hurry. Even forklifts. People have trouble driving yes. forklifts because they steer from the rear. Or exactly. just when you're reversing and you try and steer and things go a bit funny. So going a bit funny at five kilometres an hour going into reverse park is one thing. But at 275 kilometres an hour, did I say 275? 275 kilometres so. an hour. Yeah. 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 So going at that speed in reverse. But that's ridiculous. I think it would have solved the problem. You remember that episode of Seinfeld where they were going along and George, being an expert reverser, was going to park parallel. And of course, you're going to parallel park, you go past the park and you reverse in. You never drive in frontwards. And of course, George was about to reverse in. Someone else came along, was going to drive in frontwards and they sat there and had the argument on the street for hours. It would have solved the problem in this case because George would have been in that park so fast (laughs) that no one else would have had the chance to try and get in on that park. Good point. Because at 275 kilometres an hour, I reckon you can get in some Get yourself one of these. Now, how do you pronounce that name? I liked your pronunciation, the Remac Nevera. Oh, you said Remac. I Remac. said Rimac. Rimac, R-I-M-A-C. Mm. So Remac, Rimac, Nevera. Yeah, yeah, I like Nevera. Is that a, um, a derivative of the word never? Um, but anyway. Never, ah. Mm. Yeah. So hypercar, you're going to hear hypercar more because it's not just good enough to be a supercar anymore. You've got to be better than well, a supercar. Now the EVs are on the market and they're better than those uh, supercars. That's right. So you've got to go better than those.
All right, folks, today today we're driving... I'm going to start that again. Today we're diving into a story that's a true tech teaser. Silicon Valley is buzzing with a new gizmo, promising to end our smartphone fixation with a chirp and a flash. It's the AI Pin, a gadget straight out of a sci-fi flick, aiming to redefine our digital interactions. Matt, how's this work? What is it? Explain how the future works to me. It's trying to get rid of a smartphone, a screen by replacing it with something more complicated and higher technology level. Than a screen. Than a screen. So it doesn't have a screen. It looks like about the size of a matchbox, good old-fashioned matchbox, Right. and you pin it on the lapel of your shirt. So if you want to see something, though, what does it shoot out? A hologram of Princess Leo? Almost. It actually projects a laser image if you want to see something. Yeah, right. But a laser image isn't quite as good as a beautiful screen with lots of rich colours. That's right. So... What happened was two former Apple employees decided that they were too basically obsessed with their screen. They were spending all day on their screen, on their phone, and they went, we've got to get away from this. Now, most of us would probably just put it down and walk away or turn it off. But they decided to get $240 million in investments, spend five (laughs) years, secure 25 patents, and come up with an AI pin. One of the things that yeah. seems to me is you could probably achieve the same thing by putting your phone in your pocket and just talking to it. So, hey, Siri, for example, talking to your assistant, your smart assistant, because that's a lot of what this does. So you ask your AI pin, I need to get to a certain location, give me direction. So it'll give you verbal direction. So you're more having some verbal conversations with it, more so than looking at a screen. Sometimes you might need to see something, so you can just hold your hand in front of it or a piece of paper and it will project an image onto there. The whole idea Mm. here is that you're not staring at a screen, you're just listening to a device that you're talking to. Oh, it just seems like technology for the sake of it, but maybe it'll take off. They've had some pretty cool demonstrations, but... I'm not convinced I'm going to rush out and buy one. $700 US, so they're not too expensive. You'll pay $24 a month, and they are expecting 100,000 sales in the first year, which doesn't seem like a lot when you consider the volume of smartphones out Mm. there and if they're trying to replace smartphones. I'm going to give this a bit of a, I don't think it's going to take off vibe. (laughs) It does have some value. It does have something you could use for a gimmicky value. If I was on stage during a presentation, for example, I might use something like this just to show off technology. But I just can't see me using it on a day-to-day basis. And and if I'm trying to get away from that screen, I'm happy to put it down. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to be with Optus. So I get a forced <laughs> break from your screen. I don't have Optus jokes now. <laughs> so I get a forced break from my screen every now and again. I was just thinking, if you wanted to get kicked out of a party that you weren't particularly keen on um, going to, you could be showing off this until someone got really... Got really annoyed with you and said, look, mate, we're sick of you. Get out of here. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, so sometimes oh, no. things come along and I just go, I don't – I'm trying to, to see how you use it on a day-to-day basis. And I just think – I think we need that visual. And we yeah. all see, see those funny instances where you say, hey, Siri, can you look up something for me? And it gives you a completely different answer. Mm. Look up the NEMAC Nevera and they come up, what are you trying to talk about there? So there are times when it doesn't quite get it right. This would have to be at the point where it's getting it so right all the time that you would have complete confidence in it. And I'm not sure if we're quite there yet. So interesting technology and interesting they can pack in so much into something that is fairly small. I said the size of the matchbox. It's got batteries that will get you going all day. It's obviously connected to the outside world. It can communicate verbally. But the screen is what uses a lot of the battery power on a phone. Well, what we talk about a lot as well is that someone comes up with an idea 
and then someone adapts that idea to solve a different problem that yep. we never knew existed. Or Well, um, to give you an idea, their laser projection system in something that was that small took three years of R&D for them to get it right. right. So that mightn't be of any use in this device, but someone might come up with a use for that in some other device. Mm. So you're right. They might have those twenty five patents. They might make any money. They might get not get a cent back out of their two hundred forty million out of the AI pin. But one of those patents might be real gold that someone else is happy to pay for. Absolutely, or not. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't bought any shares in this company yet either. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your ear to the ground on that one, though, folks. And that's all we have time for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a rather strange man wearing uh, earmuffs has just burst into the room and is furiously brandishing an oversized checkered flag. That's our indication it's time for us to finish up. There's hardly any spare room, and clearly one of us is going to get hurt here. It's time for us to leave. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, though. Mate. And he's done that because we're a bit over time. We're going to try and stick to 45 minutes. This has been a, bit, a longer episode. No wonder he's waving it Goodness so furiously. Me. We're going okay. We're going. <laughs> <laughs> and a word of advice, folks. In summary, if you're feeling a bit loose with your cash, check the fine print when you're purchasing your next Cybertruck. If you're picking up a fridge, remember less is more. Remember that slim lines is the new black. And finally, if you're thinking about buying an NFT for Christmas, then you need to pay more attention. Full stop. End of story. Thanks for tuning in again, everyone. It's always a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk, and we hope that you're just a smidge or maybe more enlightened than when you hit the play button about 45 or 50 minutes ago. Um, I'm your host, James Eddy, and we'll catch you again in another week's time with an especially handcrafted edition of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. In the meantime, take care and we'll see you soon. Bye.